Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to see you. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. And if you're joining us in person, great to see your faces. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you have the opportunity to be with us that way also. And we are in the last week of our series, Dear Church. We'll be looking at the final church that John wrote a letter to. Actually, Jesus wrote the letter through John. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But I want to mention that in two weeks, two Sundays from today, we're going to start a brand new series called When God Became Human, or Why God Became Human. And we're going to answer the question and look in the Gospels and look in the Scripture and say, what are the different reasons that God decided to come down, wrap himself in flesh, and live among us? And that's going to lead us right up through Easter Sunday, where we'll be gathering to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's always a special Sunday to be together. So that starts in two weeks. Next week, we have a very special guest speaker. I want to ask all of you to come back next week. You're going to want to hear this guy. He's a good friend of mine. His name is David Kim, Dr. David Kim. He is the president of the University of Valley Forge in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's actually a university that I'm an adjunct professor for, so I have a great relationship with him. And he is a good friend, a really remarkable leader, and a wonderful preacher. And so next Sunday, you're not going to want to miss it, Dr. David Kim will be with us in both of our services, and I'm so excited for that. This morning, we are uh, finishing up our series, Dear Church. And, uh, you know, this is the time of the year where we're all kind of concerned about sickness and, and colds and flu. And, of course, this year it's very different because we're also very concerned about COVID-19. And uh, I'm very thankful to God that our numbers in our community are getting better and people are moving into more health. And we should give God thanks for that and be grateful for that. And we are. And, uh, you know, but I, I actually have um, I've learned that I have a pretty strong immune system. Uh, I don't get sick very often. And when I do get sick, my whole strategy for getting better is to just sleep. And it drives my wife crazy. She's like, how do you sleep through your sicknesses? I'm like, as soon as I feel a sickness coming on, I get right into bed, and I just refuse to get out of bed until I feel better again. And, uh, I, but, but a couple years ago, um, sickness came for me, and I couldn't avoid it, and it was my least favorite type of sickness. It's the stomach sickness. I hate it when I have the stomach bug and I feel sick, and it was a really, really bad one. And I was up most of the night. I'll spare you the details, but I'll just say I spent more time in the bathroom than I did in the bedroom. It was a rough night. And it got to that point, which is the worst point of the whole journey, where there was nothing left in me. You've been there, right? And you're just dry heaving, and it's painful, and it's terrible, and I'm just in the bathroom praying for Jesus to return. And, uh, and I just kind of had this thought, like, you're going to keep being sick all night. You might as well not have nothing in you. So put something in you so that when you get sick next time, at least there's something there. And so I don't know if that's conventional wisdom, but it made a lot of sense to me at 2 in the morning. And so I went downstairs, I opened up the freezer, and we had just purchased a big box from Costco's of these large Luigi lemon-flavored frozen ices. You ever had those? And uh, I thought, this will be good because, I mean, it's mostly water and lemon. Like, this won't be terrible coming back up. And so I, I just start eating them. And, I'm, and so I bring the whole box of them. I'm just laying on the couch, and I'm just eating them. And by some miracle, I didn't get sick the rest of the night. It was fine. And the next morning, my, my, my middle daughter walks down. She was about seven years old at the time, and she sees me sitting on the couch. And I want you to try to picture this. I'm sitting there in just like kind of this tight white T-shirt, just like sitting on the couch, looking like I got beaten all night. And I'm just surrounded by empty uh, lemon ice cream flavored things. And, and just wrappers are everywhere. And she's looking at me like, what happened here? And in her little mind, she thinks, Daddy's been eating ice cream all night. She doesn't understand this. Lemon ice is different than ice cream. And so she looks at me and she goes, Daddy, 
shouldn't you be healthy and not? And she paused and looked at me and said, puffy? (laughs) (laughs) Sickness comes for us all. And this morning, the passage that we're looking at, we actually see sickness come for Jesus. And uh, we're going to look at a letter that's probably, I would argue, it's the most well-known letter of the seven. And in it, we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn what makes Jesus sick, what makes us sick, and then what makes us well, okay? What makes Jesus sick, what makes us sick, and what makes us well? So let's start in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. I'm reading to you from the ESV. And Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, he's introducing himself, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. What he's saying is, I wish you were one or the other, cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth, which means I will throw you up. What makes Jesus sick? I know we all have, most of us have apps on our phone, and some of us, uh, you know, which apps are most used on our phone. And one of the apps that's most important in my phone and in my wife's phone is the Starbucks app, because my wife loves Starbucks. And so we go to the Starbucks app, and we like to order ahead so we don't have to wait in line. And uh, if you go to the Starbucks app and you click on the menu, they, they have all these different categories of drinks. And I wrote down the different categories of drinks. There's hot coffees, there's hot teas, there's hot drinks, then there's cold coffees, iced teas, cold drinks, and frappuccinos. If you know what a frappuccino is, it's basically a frozen, frozen drink that has about 800 calories in it. And so, but if you look at those categories, what you'll see is not there is the category of lukewarm drink, room temperature drink, because nobody wants that. You want your coffee hot, or you want it iced, and you want it cold. And here Jesus has a complaint against the church in Laodicea, and he says, I wish you were hot or you were cold, but you're lukewarm, so you make me sick. And growing up, I always was confused by Jesus' words here because I understood that Jesus would prefer that we be hot, which represents having passion for Jesus and serving him with all of our lives. But why would Jesus say, I prefer that you would be cold than lukewarm? Is Jesus saying that it's actually better for you to be entirely indifferent and distant from me than to be in the middle on me? And I think maybe that is true. I've seen that. That sometimes the most dangerous place for your heart to be is in the middle on Jesus. And and to sort of say, I got enough of Jesus to have what I, basically you're inoculated to Jesus. You have enough of him to not really have him. It's a very dangerous place to be, to come to church every week and think you have Jesus, but for Jesus not to actually have you. So I do think that's a danger, but that's actually not what Jesus is saying here. And for us to understand what Jesus is saying to this church and to us this morning, we have to understand the city of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a wonderful place to live. Uh, They were the center of uh, banking. Uh, a lot of commercial activity, they were wealthy, they were very well off, and the only thing that made the real estate in Laodicea not as desirable as it would have been was their water supply. There was one local river lake that was muddy, it was dirty. In fact, um, archaeological evidence has studied that area, and it's indicated that the waters around Laodicea were afflicted with something called calcium carbonate content. And what it would do is it would make the waters impure, undrinkable, and if you drank them, it would make you spit it up, vomit, and be sick. So Jesus is speaking to a city that understands the dangers of lukewarm water. Six miles to the north of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis, and they were known for their hot springs. 
they had these hot springs that would get to, naturally, they would get to 95 degrees. Doesn't that sound like a nice, wouldn't you like to dip in that right now? I'll go outside today and dip into some 95 degree uh, water. And the, the people in Laodicea, they had built these aqueducts, these structures by which they could take water from six miles away, the hot, hot water, and bring it right into their city because they couldn't drink their own water. Nine miles to their west was a city called Colossae, and that's where we get the book of Colossians from. And they, on the other hand, had very cold water. So nine miles to the west was cold water, six miles to the north was hot water, and they built this aqueduct structure so they could bring the hot water to Laodicea from the north and the cold water from, uh, to Laodicea from the west. The problem was, as I'm sure you've figured out, is by the time it got to them, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. And it lost its usefulness because hot water was very useful for bathing, and they even drank hot water back then as a tonic. And cold water is very good for refreshing, right? You want, I'm a sort of guy that needs ice in my drink. I want my drinks cold. It's good and it's refreshing. But lukewarm water, what good is it? And so what Jesus is actually saying here is if you were hot or cold, you would be useful to me. But as it is, I feel towards you the way you feel towards your local water. You make me sick. And they would have got it right away. They would have understood right away. So what Jesus is saying here, what makes him sick what makes him want to vomit us up, so to speak, to use the metaphor, is a lack of usefulness. When we're not useful, when we're not faithful, when we're not fruitful in his kingdom. He's saying, I'm looking for people who are useful for my purposes and my plans. And he wants to, and we sang it this morning, here I am. Here I am. You can have it all. And God has a plan and purpose for each of our lives. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13, or verse 13, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, it's lost its usefulness. And so there's a purpose for your life. God has saved you and rescued you, and if you've placed your hope and trust in him, he's brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but not just so you have a better seat, not just so you have your ticket stamped to get to heaven someday. There's a purpose And there's a usefulness for every believer in the kingdom of God. And what makes us lukewarm is when we don't embrace our usefulness. And what does it mean to be useful in the kingdom? I wrote down some thoughts. It starts by understanding that there's God's kingdom and then there's so many other competing kingdoms. So many other kingdoms out there that people are tempted to live for. Let me give you some examples. The kingdom of career. Some people's entire life is about climbing the ladder. The kingdom of family. Some people, all their hope and joy and peace and well-being is wrapped up in family. And these are not bad things, of course, but these are not the kingdoms to which we are called to pledge our allegiance to. The kingdom of entertainment, the kingdom of politics, that's a big one. The kingdom of power, the kingdom of wealth, the kingdom of nationalism, the kingdom of status, the kingdom of image. And you're thinking, those are not all bad things. Yes, they're not all bad things, but they're not meant to reign and rule over us. And we have to realize that because every single one of us is giving our lives to a kingdom, it means we're also giving our lives to a king. There's something we serve. So if you serve wealth and uh, career above all things, if that's your kingdom, then your real God is money and status and all the things that you believe you can find in that kingdom. And so the question before us this morning, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, whether you're a Christian or you would say you're not a Christian, the question before us is not, do you serve a king? question is, who do you serve? Everyone serves a king. Which king do you serve? 
And the way that we live should reflect the king that we serve. Uh, our church has been going through this amazing journey called Read Together, where there's over 100 of us using this version app. And we've just read through Matthew this morning. If you did your reading this morning, we just finished Mark. And one of the wonderful things about going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to start the year is there's no way you can miss seeing who Jesus actually was, what he cared about, how he treated people, what he said what his values were, what consumed him. And the question before us this morning in considering our usefulness in the kingdom is, in what ways do I reflect my king? Now, you don't have time to do this right now, but maybe later, look back through your week, look at your calendar, look at the way you spent your time. Where did all your energies go? Where did all your strength go? Where's all your focus most of the time? That will give you a clue as to what kingdom you're really giving yourself to and what kingdom you're really committed to. It's about kingdom business, and it's not just about what we believe or say, it's what we do. Okay, so what makes Jesus sick is a lack of usefulness for his kingdom, when we just show up but we're not useful. Second thing we learn in this text is what makes you and I sick, what makes us sick. So let's keep reading. Verse 17, Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you actually can be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, Laodicea, I already mentioned, was a wealthy banking center, a commercial center. They were a site of thriving medical and textile industries. Interestingly enough, Laodicea was known for its treatment of eye injuries and eye sickness. If you had an eye disease in this ancient world, this is where you would go to receive this treatment. And it was a very well-to-do community. And in AD 60, about 30 years before John wrote these words, he was, John was banished to an island called Patmos, and he's writing these words there in about AD 90, 95. About 30 to 35 years before John wrote these words, the city of Laodicea suffered a terrible earthquake. And so did some of the other cities in the area, like Philadelphia. And in that time, Rome, the imperial government, said, you guys have suffered so much, we're going to give you funding. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Does that sound current and relevant for those of you that are waiting on that check? We're going to give you funding because your life is falling apart. And and, and Laodicea, they were so self-sufficient, so self-reliant, so confident, so prideful that they declined all the support and financial help that the imperial government, uh, that imperial Rome wanted to offer them. And what's happened is the nature of the city has seeped into the nature of the church. And Jesus is saying to them, and this is hard to hear this morning. It was hard to hear for them, and it'll be hard to hear for you. Jesus is saying, I see you much better than you see yourself. And that's why he introduced himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness. Because ultimately, this is Jesus' word against their word. But Jesus is saying, I'm not one of many amens. I'm not one of many faithful and true witnesses. I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness, and I see you better than you see yourself. You think you're good, you think you're wealthy, you think you're clothed, you think you're healthy, but I see your spiritual condition. And while on the outside you might have yourself together, on the inside I can see, what did he say? You're poor and you're blind and you're naked. You're lacking in every key area of life. And what makes us sick, listen, what makes you and I sick is our pride and our self-reliance and being unteachable. It's an inability to see and an unwillingness to recognize our own condition. 
Nothing will hinder your usefulness and my usefulness in the kingdom of God more than pride. Pride is the greatest enemy of being useful for God's kingdom. And it started back in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. It was pride. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they could do better than God. And you and I are still the same. When we go our own way and when we reject God's reign and rule and his word and his desire for us, we're saying, yeah, that's good, but I know better. I'll live my life my way. And it's pride that causes us to reject God as God and to position ourselves as God in our own lives. Pride will hinder your usefulness in the kingdom. Here's some questions to ask yourself as you're reflecting on your own level of pride. And by the way, I just want to be honest. This was a struggle this week for me as I prepped this message because I felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me so much. And I just, after the first service, some people out front were saying, boy, that was kind of a hard word to hear, but I needed to hear it. I said, well, you know, all week I had to hear it. So, I mean, you guys got to hear it now. Like, if I got to be miserable hearing this, you get to be miserable on Sunday morning hearing it. But, but here's some questions that I've been asking myself this week. And this first one might surprise you, but it says, how much do prideful people bother you? Because the more that prideful people bother you, the more that you probably have a lot of pride in your own heart. What actually bothers us the most is when we see our own weaknesses reflected back to us in other people. By the way, parenting is that 24-7. <laughs> That's all that is, is seeing your own mess in these little humans. How much does pride bother you? A truly humble person isn't as alarmed about the pride in other people's lives because they're not thinking about themselves all the time. Can you see how situations affect other people before you think about how they affect you? Are you open to hearing other people's perspectives? Do you listen more than you talk? When is the last time, this is a good one, when is the last time you accepted a truth that didn't support or advance your position on something? That's a big issue right now in our country, isn't it? We all look at the same data and facts, and we walk away with totally different narratives, totally different stories. And if I see a, a set of data, or if I see facts that don't support the narrative that I happen to like, I reject it or I attack it. And I, not, I don't just reject and attack the facts. I reject and attack the people who brought the facts to bear, right? And then if I see facts and data that support my narrative, oh, I love it. I pull it so close to me and I post it online. I let everybody know. See, I told you. And these experts <laughs> support what I think is true. When's the last time that you came across a news article, a fact, uh, some data, and you said, wow, that's actually different than I thought, but I'll look closer or I'll consider it? Pride will prevent you from actually doing that. It will prevent you, you'll think you're seeking truth, but you're not seeking truth. You're seeking stuff that supports your truth, and pride will keep you um, on that path. And then also, what is behind your good behavior? Because pride can be behind even our good behavior. Let me give you an example. So we're all, you know, reading the Bible right now as a church. We're going through it three chapters a day through the New Testament in 90 days. I was reading a book, our, our pastors at this church, we're studying a book right now called Lead by Paul David Tripp. And this past week in our staff meeting, in one part of the chapter, he talked about Bible reading and what's our motivation in reading our Bible. And he gave three motivations that sometimes people have. For some people, reading their Bible is just about getting more knowledge. And they want more knowledge because they serve the kingdom of knowledge. And they serve the kingdom of intellect. And they serve the kingdom of being smarter than other people. And they serve the kingdom of whatever. Then for some people, it's not just about getting knowledge. It's actually about showing other people how spiritual they are. Look at I read my Bible today. Aren't you proud of me? And they serve the kingdom of acceptance and approval and being welcomed and being liked and being respected. 
And then for some people, reading the Bible is not just about knowledge. It's not just about showing other people how spiritual they are. It's about getting stuff so they can win arguments. It's because they're serving the kingdom of winning and the kingdom of superiority. You can see how even the good behavior, the right behavior of reading your Bible can actually be done in service to other kingdoms other than the true kingdom of God. And he summarized it this way. I thought this was so good. He said, he quoted a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous preacher who wrote a commentary on, on, on the book of Romans. And in, in that commentary, he said this, listen, allow the scriptures to search you, otherwise it can be dangerous, very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, listen, there is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it actually is to you if you don't apply it to yourself. There is a sense in which the more you know about the Bible, it becomes a great danger to your spiritual condition if you will not allow the Spirit of God to apply it to your life. So how do we go to Scripture? We don't go to Scripture just to get knowledge, although there's lots of knowledge in Scripture. We don't go to Scripture just to show other people that we're spiritual, although it is a spiritual discipline. And we don't go to the Bible certainly to win arguments, although it helps shape our worldview. We go to the Bible to be changed. We submit ourselves to the word of God, and when we open up the Bible, we say, what does this reveal about who you are, God, and how should I be changed in response to that revelation? So the danger is, don't just read. I'm glad we're all reading. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite things every day is to log on and read with you and see the comments that you've left. But don't just read. Read to be changed. and apply. That's why James said, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. I have three girls, 12. Caroline just turned 10. Maddie just turned 7. So now 12, 10, and 7. And um, if I were to leave for the day and say, here's a list of things I would like you to do, and I'd give them three or four instructions. I came home at the end of the day, and I said, girls, did you do what Daddy asked you to do? And they said, oh, no, no, no. But we memorized what you told us. <laughs> and we told other people what you told us. And we talked about what you told us. And we researched what you told us. And then Lilia says, and I studied, and so I understand what you told us better than Caroline understands what you told us. At some point, Jesus is going to say, what did you do with my word? And if we're not careful, we're going to say, I memorized it. I talked about it. I told other people about it. I studied it. I researched it. And I even understood it better than that person. And Jesus can say, what did you do with it? What did you do with it? Did you apply the word? And ultimately, what makes us sick is when the pride in our heart prevents us from allowing the word of God to shape us and change us in such a way that we live our lives useful for the kingdom. So there's an inextricable connection between our sickness and Christ's sickness in this text. When we have too much pride in our heart, we lose our usefulness. And when we use our use, lose our usefulness, Christ says, you're lukewarm, and I'll spit you out of my mouth. Okay, let's close. What makes us well? And here's the good news. Verse 19, Jesus says, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. You've probably seen this picture somewhere, right? Jesus standing in a garden at a door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what makes us well? Two things that we're going to finish. What makes us well, according to this text? Number one, the discipline of the Lord. And number two, the table of the Lord. And we have to have both. We can't have one without the other. Jesus says, I discipline those whom I love. 
Our family has a little puppy in our house now. We've had him for about four months, I think now. It feels like four years, if I'm being honest. And uh, uh, in the last four months, I, I promise you, I have raised my voice in my house in the last four months more than I have in the previous four years. And we're trying to discipline this dog because we want, we envision someday this dog, when, when friends and family, when you come over to my house for dinner, we don't want to have to put Mickey in his crate. We want him to learn how to interact normally with other humans and not lose his mind and jump all over them and just attack, you know. So we're trying to teach him. You don't jump on people and you don't bite hands and you just relax, just chill out. But he's a puppy, of course. But all this discipline, all this sort of yelling and all the putting him in his crate and all the teaching him what to do is not because we don't like him. It's because we see something better for him in his future. And if he will just learn to listen and obey, someone pray with me this morning. If he will just learn to listen and obey, then what we know is someday there is a flourishing reality for him where he can just walk around the house all day long no matter who comes in and goes out. And when Jesus disciplines us, he's doing it because he sees something better for us. He sees flourishing for us. He sees a future for us. He sees a hope for us. It's out of his love that he disciplines us. And we need his discipline if we're going to be made well. But the second thing that we see here is the table of the Lord. I'm going to have the band come up, and we're going to sing a song in just a moment. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door, I will come in, and I'll have a meal with you. Now, in Laodicea, listen, at this time, Roman soldiers, there was a law, and Roman soldiers, how would you like this? Roman soldiers were allowed to come into your house at dinner time and sit down at your table, and you had to feed them. So you've worked all day, you've slaved all day for this meal, and the last minute a bunch of soldiers come in and they sit down, they say, what's on the menu? And you had to feed them, that was the law. And by comparison, Jesus here stands at the door and he knocks. And he waits for the one on the inside of the door to open the door so he can come in and have a meal with them. Now last week, if you were here, we talked about the church in Philadelphia where Jesus said, I open doors and no one shuts it, and I shut doors and no one opens it. And here Jesus is saying, there's a door that I'm waiting for you actually to open. And a lot of times people think this, this is about salvation. And I've heard this verse a lot, like Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, and if you open up your heart, he'll come in and he'll save you, and he'll be your, he'll be your savior and he'll be your Lord. But that's actually not what this verse is about, because who was this written to? The church. This invitation is not to unbelievers, although Jesus, of course, is waiting at the hearts of unbelievers. This specific invitation is to your heart if you're a believer this morning. The offer is not let me come in and save you. The offer is Let's have a meal together. Let's have a relationship. I want to be with you. And this time in history, sharing a meal with someone was an intimate thing. You would recline at a table. You would lay against each other, and you would eat together. And it was, a, it was, a, it was significant of friendship and communion. And Jesus is saying to this church, you've forgotten what it's like to have a meal with me, to be at the table. No, Jesus wants to make us well, and he does it through two things, his discipline and his table. And we got to welcome both. Some people want the rules and the law, but they don't want the relationship because relationship is messy. And relationship means he asks everything of us. Some people want the relationship, but they don't want the rules and the limitations. They want to live life their way. But if you and I are going to get out of our sickness and we're going to allow Jesus to make us well, we need to embrace his discipline. And we need to come to his table. And so this morning, our prayer simply is this. Jesus, make me useful for your kingdom. Who wants to live a wasted life? No one. The one thing we cannot get through this world without is purpose. Everyone needs purpose, and everyone will find it somewhere. In fact, when Jesus said, come to me and buy from me gold, he wasn't actually saying, you got money and you owe it to me. 
Because these people, remember, they were poor, they were naked, they were sick. They didn't have money to buy. What Jesus was saying when he said, buy from me, is he was actually, if you study the sentence, he's saying, you're trying to buy this everywhere else. Forget all those places. Come to me. You've spent your whole life trying to find acceptance in relationships. Find it in Jesus. You've spent your whole life trying to find power through career and dominating things. Find it in Jesus. Look at him at the cross, laying his power down and becoming weak so that he could give us the power of hope beyond every grave, any struggle, any sorrow. Everything we've been looking everywhere else for is found in Jesus. So Jesus, make us useful for your kingdom. Jesus, make us humble and help us to receive and turn to you only for what you have for us. And Jesus, help us to embrace your discipline and to be thankful for it and to come to your table and to sit with you and to have a meal with you and to have a relationship with you. Let's pray together.